Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, as we find his mind described in scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. J.C. Ryle Purity. What comes to mind when you think about that word? Was it virginity or abstinence? Did you think of innocent babies or children? Or maybe something unique like pure gold or pure silver? Or heck, maybe even purified water? In my opinion, something that is pure has a sort of increased value or increased desire to have or to own. If something is pure, it is almost considered more valuable, acceptable, worthy, or desirable. If your first thought of purity was virginity, then it'd be natural for you to respond to what I just said about increased value as offensive, hurtful, inconsiderate, maybe even tone deaf. But is purity solely reduced down to what I have or haven't done in the bedroom? If I'm not a virgin anymore, or still struggle with certain behaviors, will I or could I ever be pure again? What does purity actually mean? Before we take on the man monumental task of unpacking this controversial theme, my name is Chris and, I'm, and you're listening to the Don't Knock It podcast, where we address our past decisions, lessons, ways of acting and thinking, and put them face to face with the risen Christ revealed in scriptures. So what is purity? Where does it come from? A quick Google search will give you the definitions like freedom from contamination, immorality, pollution, or the state of not being mixed with anything else. The same Google search will give you, the, give you synonyms like clarity, goodness, or freshness. Aside from what Google tells us, I think it's safe to say that the idea of purity often comes with thoughts of morality and sexuality. So because of that, I think it's necessary to go to our final authority on such difficult themes and topics, which is God's word. Since the Bible records the beginning of things like sex, marriage, morality, behavior, as well as their standards, we as both believers and skeptics need to consult the God of the universe for insight on those things because frankly, it only takes a millisecond scrolling through Twitter or watching the news to realize we have fallen. We have fallen short in all of those things. So while, so while I was digging through this topic, according to the Bible, purity is a much more complex issue than I thought. I don't mean complex as in difficult to understand, but more so as intentional and intricate. So why, why go through the trouble of attempting to clarify purity? Well, simply because I think in our process of understanding what the Bible teaches about it, we begin understanding God's heart behind giving us certain requirements for, for purity, or to use a more substantial biblical word, holiness. In other words, God enforces requirements of purity or holiness or holiness on us, and through them, he reveals his heart and desire for us. 
So here's how I'm going to go about explaining purity and how God put those requirements in place for us. We got to go back to the beginning, man. I want to walk us through, hopefully briefly and understandably, through one of the most underrated books of the Bible, which is actually my favorite book of the Old Testament, and that is the book of Leviticus. Let's get right into it. I'll start with a brief context leading leading up to Leviticus. The book of Leviticus opens with and he called, which serves as a continuation from the previous books, Genesis and Exodus. Genesis establishes the true nature of creation, along with humanity's deepest purpose within that creation, and that is being made in the image of God and enjoying the fullness of life with him in his immediate presence. Through the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's sin propels humanity into a downward spiral, pushing humanity further and further away from God's presence. Something interesting happens here, which is worth noting, though. God in Genesis 2.17 says that in the day that they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they shall surely die. But through, as you read, they don't die, not in the sense as they, that they cease to exist. So what happened? God, in his mercy, covers them in animal skins which foreshadowed the means necessary to dwell with him, which is the shedding of blood through the slaughtering of animals. Although their lives were briefly spared after disobeying, Adam and Eve experienced a type of death in that moment when they were banished from God's immediate presence, where they had no sin and fullness of life. We'll revisit this in a second. So through the moral decline described throughout Genesis, this lands God's people enslaved in Egypt under an oppressive ruler. The story continues on in Exodus as the Lord hears the cry of his people and appears to Moses in a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God sovereignly displays his power over Israel's oppressors and ushers them through the parting of the Red Sea and into his divine presence at Mount Sinai. The last few chapters of Exodus describe the construction of a tabernacle, which was essentially the place where Israel was to offer sacrifices to God as their place of worship. This serves as further proof of God intending to be Israel's God and for them to be his people. The book of Exodus ends on a cliffhanger, though. Moses is unable to enter into the place of worship because the presence of God descended from heaven to dwell in it. So what now? This is where Leviticus comes into the picture. Leviticus describes how God institutes a sacrificial system to the unclean, sinful nation of Israel in order to enable, to prepare, and to sanctify them for proper worship. In other words, God is holy and man is sinful. God cannot maintain his holiness or his purity, if he dwells among sinful, impure people. Because if you remember, he kicked them out of the garden because they disobeyed, and God covered them with animal skins. This covering is essentially what Leviticus is all about. One more thing to mention about Leviticus before we do a brief overview of the chapters in order to better understand purity 
is to describe a what a priest is. A priest is a community representative who goes to God on behalf of the people. Also, a prophet, on the other hand, is someone who communicates to the people on behalf of God. So simply put, a priest is the people to God, and a prophet is God to the people. Just wanted to clarify that if you were wondering what the differences between those two were. So regarding priests, if you're Catholic or were raised Catholic, this is basically the priest's role. He acts as the middleman between you and God. So after giving that introduction, if you have your Bibles handy, please open up the book of Leviticus and follow along. This isn't going to be a verse by verse, but uh, verse by verse Bible study per se, but an overview of the portion of the Bible that I believe will help us better understand what purity means, and hopefully, I pray it leads you, it leads to you worship, worshiping God more intentionally, and authentically, through both your words and your actions. So let's get started. So Leviticus opens with describing five different types of offerings that symbolize the manner in which the people of Israel were to conduct themselves now that the holy God is in their prison, is, is, is in their midst. These offerings were sacrifices that the priest would make inside the tabernacle. They served to reveal the state of each person's heart and to maintain a devoted life to God's promises. The five types of offerings were the burnt offering, grain offering, the peace offering, and then the sin and guilt offerings. So I'll describe each one briefly here. So the burnt offering symbolized an overall confession of sin and dependence on God's grace. This offering set the, essentially set the tone for the acts of worship that followed. The grain and peace offerings both symbolized thanksgiving and celebration of God in community with his people. This offering in particular actually consisted of a portion being eaten by the priest himself, um, by the priest who was offering it. This is actually pretty cool because since the priest represented the God, uh, uh, the people to God, and this sacrifice was being consumed by fire to God, then in reality, if you if you actually think about it, the people through the priest were sharing a meal with God, which I think is pretty spectacular. So moving on to the sin and guilt offerings, these demonstrated the sinner's movement towards forgiveness and restitution after offending God and or his neighbor. The guilt offering is the one that asks the most from the person because both a confession and a restoration of property to the wronged party are to be made. So for example, let's just say I am found guilty of stealing five pieces of gold from my neighbor. In order for justice to be served and for me to be innocent again, I am to give him a fifth of that amount on top of the five that I stole, making it six pieces that I give to that, that I have to give back to him. I am also to give the priest a healthy ram from my flock that is worth five pieces of silver or five pieces of gold. This is all supposed to happen on the same day in order for my sin of theft to be forgiven. Once my neighbor receives my six pieces of gold and the priest offers my ram in the tabernacle to God, my sin of theft is forgiven and I am innocent before God until the next time I sin, until the next time I commit a sin. 
this is how the sacrificial system worked and essentially also the justice system. But what if I was poor and didn't have a ram to offer? Well, that was the beauty of this system because the animal you offered, whether it was a lamb, a bird, or even a portion of grain or flour, was determined by your wealth and, stat and status. If you, couldn't if you couldn't offer a ram, then you could offer a bird. If you couldn't offer a bird, then you could offer a portion of flour. This was done by God. This was in instituted by God in order to make forgiveness and restoration of community possible for everyone because everyone's heart was sinful. So to summarize chapters 1 through 7, God has provided a means for sinners to be accepted and enter into his presence. This provision is shown by describing the different types of offerings uh, that are needed from the people and the priests to have a relationship with God. Now, moving on to chapters 8, 8 through 10. So you may have the question, if the priests act as bridges for the people to God, what about the priests themselves? They're not sinless, so how are they able to enter into God's presence? This is answered in chapter 8 as Moses prepares the priesthood, which is Aaron and his sons, his, his, his family, to do the priestly work of interceding on behalf of the people. This ordination ceremony, so to speak, details the necessary actions needed to enable Aaron and his sons to serve as set apart unto the Lord as priests. In verses 34 through 35, actually, Moses says this is all done to make their forgiveness of sins possible and so that they would not die walking into the presence of God, impure and sinful. So then chapter 9 shows that, shows that the necessary ceremonial procedure described in chapter 8, that it worked. The priestly duties were executed correctly, and Aaron, so Aaron began his work of offering sacrifices to God. And here we see such a beautiful passage, the resolution of the crisis described at the end of Exodus, actually, when Moses was unable to enter, when he was unable to enter into the tabernacle. And so I'm just going to read the end of chapter 9 because it's, it's too good to just summarize. So Leviticus 9, starting at verse 22, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The gathered people just witnessed the Lord's glory fall from heaven, consuming the, the successfully performed offerings. It worked. Everything was done according to how God commanded. So he consumed the offerings with fire, indicating his fellowship with them. This brings us to chapter 10, where we see one of the most terrifying events in the Old Testament. On the same day as the successful offerings, Aaron's priestly sons, Nadab and Abihu, do something foolishly devastating. They approached God with offerings that the Lord had not commanded 
and were consumed by the same fire that consumed the successful offerings earlier in the day. This tells us something incredibly significant about God, and it's this. God's presence is to be honored, revered, and respected. Nadab, Nadab and Abihu failed to observe a pivotal priestly responsibility, and that was to distinguish between holy and unclean. Since the priest was responsible for demonstrating God's call to holiness by carefully executing the priestly services, any type of negligence could be dangerous for those who disobey. Nadab and Abihu's deaths communicate that any human breach into the divine sphere would involve the ritually dangerous mixture of life and death, of purity and impurity. God's holiness requires that we approach him in the manner in which he prescribed to us. But before I get into the next section, this was the response of Moses to Aaron after his son's, his son's deaths, who was probably a grieving father at this point. We see it in verse 3, where it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Aaron had nothing to say because he knew the gravity of God's holiness. Moses even tells Aaron's relatives not to grieve because to grieve over Nadab and Abihu was to indicate that their deaths were unjust, which would stir up God's wrath not just upon Aaron, but upon everyone. This brings us to chapters 11 through 15. These chapters introduce qualifications of purity and holiness, cleanliness and uncleanness, and what actions sanctify or profane somebody. Honestly, a lot of these verses contain very unusual restrictions to our modern ears, but my focus on this section is to describe what they accomplished for the people of Israel. I actually would encourage you to read this section of verses because they're actually quite fascinating. These chapters include laws of purity regarding food, so dietary laws, um, laws of purity regarding childbirth, infectious diseases, and even personal, personal hygiene. But what did these unusual laws accomplish for God's people? They can be summarized in, in three words. They, were, they accomplished three things, identification, consecration, and dedication. So number one, identification. By observing these laws, the people would identify themselves with the God who gave those laws. Number two, consecration. To be holy as is commanded in Leviticus 11.45 is to be set apart unto God and from the sin that hinders fellowship with God. To be consecrated is to be set apart for a specific purpose and that is to glorify God in both action and truth. And then number three, dedication. To observe such specific laws, even those about what you eat, requires someone to recognize the authority of God, uh, the authority of the God who gave those laws, and to dedicate oneself to Him. So these laws allowed for the people of God to identify with Him, be set apart for Him, and dedicate themselves to Him. 
This is all enormous deal considering how sinful and impure humanity is and how holy and pure God is. What a beautiful act of mercy. Now, moving right along to chapter 16, which is literally the very center of not just Leviticus, but of the first five books of the Bible known as the Mosaic Law. Chapter 16 describes the Day of Atonement, which is the Jewish holiday known as Yom Kippur. This was a day of judgment and reconciliation, a day where all of the sins of the faithful were forgiven once a year, including the sins of the high priests, of the high priests themselves, because Israel was not to have sinful mediators. This day was essentially a catch-all of sins, meaning any sin that was not accounted for throughout the year is accounted for on this particular day so that no sin could essentially slip through the cracks. It was on this day that the true covering for all of the sins of all of Israel was made possible. One thing I forgot to mention earlier about the tabernacle was that it contained an, it contained an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. This inner portion of the tabernacle was where God's presence dwelt, behind a large, thick veil. And on the Day of Atonement was the only time of the year where the high priest was able to enter behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, affirming that God was opening a way for humanity to dwell immediately with him again. At this point in your Bible reading, you may consider rejoicing. Because if you've read through the first two books, Genesis and Exodus, you understand how monumental this moment is. Considering humanity's sin after sin after sin, this annual opportunity to fellowship with the most holy God is indeed a miracle. Moving on to our last section before concluding, chapter 17 through 27. So now that access to God has become possible through the giving of the five types of offerings we saw in the beginning, as well as the consecration or the setting apart of the priests in order for them to do their priestly duties of offering sacrifices, as well as the establishment of the Day of Atonement where the people dwell in God's immediate presence through the high priests, we get to these last chapters. Leviticus 17 through 27 provide extensive regulations for those wanting to fulfill Israel's purpose of being a holy nation. This portion of Leviticus is designed to promote holiness in Israel by regulating the individual's personal and private affairs. In other words, chapter 17 through 27 answer the question, how can I live holy in other aspects of my life besides ritual sacrifice? How can I live as God has called me to live in my everyday life? These regulations include preserving the sanctity of marriage, of social ethics, calendar celebrations, and the priesthood, as well as prohibiting marriage between close relatives, bestiality, other sexual behaviors, and idolatry. These are usually the chapters where people go to argue against tattoos and to make arguments like, how could you believe homosexuality is a sin when you still trim your beard and eat shrimp? This isn't the episode to interpret and explain those arguments, but I will say this. From what we've observed so far, it is clearly evident God has been incredibly gracious to impure, sinful people. 
So those specific pro prohibitions that God has enforced are for a specific reason, and that reason and that reason is clear. That reason is to set apart an unholy people and make them holy as he is as he is holy for himself. We'll, re we'll revisit those passages some other time. Chapter 26 specifically is worth noting here as it is in an it is it is an explicit listing of blessings and curses which serve as a which serve a two-part purpose. Number one, to motivate the people to obey. And number two, to discourage them from rebelling. Here's why. The worst event Israel could possibly experience is the turning away of God is the turning away of God as a result of their disobedience. This possibility of separation between God and his people is at the heart of those curses mentioned in chapter 26. Chapter 26 is essentially the culmination of God's holy nature as both righteous judge and his desire to display his steadfast love towards such a rebellious people. God's desire to restore his people people despite destructive offenses like the golden calf described in Exodus 32 and Aaron's son's unauthorized offerings in Leviticus 10. This in, these indicate that his holiness also embodies patience and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Leviticus opens with the words, and he called showing God was committed to restoring intimate communion and fellowship with his people. In Genesis, we see man ruined. In Exodus, we see man redeemed and rescued. And in Leviticus, we see man cleansed, ready to worship and to serve. God giving Israel the sacrificial system was to prepare them for relationship with him. But why was this necessary? because God is perfectly unblemished, without error, and completely holy, and sinful man is not. Therefore, God provided the means to be holy or pure in order to dwell in his presence. This was accomplished through the covering of sin. The covering of sin through the sacrificial system in Leviticus only served as temporary means hence why they had to do it every single day, all the time, once a year, especially for the Day of Atonement. And as mentioned at the beginning, this served as a foreshadowing of something greater. When Adam and Eve sinned, God covered them with animal skins. When Israel sinned, the high priest would offer sacrifices on the altar in the tabernacle, covering their sins through the shedding of animals' blood. What did these specific things foreshadow? What's the bigger picture? What's the main point? And that that main point is the true covering of sin embodied in the shedding of the Messiah's blood, the blood of Jesus, the unblemished Lamb of God. As the unblemished holy sacrifice, the great high priest himself, who is Jesus Christ, went to the altar not of the tabernacle, but of Calvary, and conducted the final priestly ritual of atoning for the sins of the, of the believing community. Which is who? It's us. 
it's us. Anyone who trusts in his finished priestly work is included in that believing community who receives the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Yeah. So what is purity according to the Bible? Is it simply what I have or haven't done in the bedroom? Am I too far gone if I've walked away from God for several years? Did my perpetrator steal something from me that I could never be worthy of again? No. No, my beloved. This may sound disturbing or unusual to some of you, but to believers in Jesus, it is a precious treasure, and that is this. Purity is being covered by the blood, but not the blood of sacrificed bulls and goats or avoiding trimming your beard or not eating shrimp as commanded in Leviticus, but by the blood of Jesus that covers not just our daily sin, but all the sins of those who would believe in his finished priestly work. And as we saw in the Nadab and Abihu, death, Abihu deaths in chapter 10, it doesn't matter if we approach God with good intentions or a good heart. If we don't approach him the way he has prescribed, namely through his holy son, Jesus, then like Nadab and Abihu, we don't stand a chance. First Peter 1 verses 13 through 16 say, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which, you were, your, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So whether you've had many partners have divorced, have stolen things, have blasphemed blasphemed God's name, have had a child out of wedlock, have gotten drunk, have watched pornography, are currently living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, no matter what you've done, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, you could never be more, more pure than you are by his covering. You are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are pure and holy, acceptable to enter into God's presence. But if not, you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You stand guilty and you will bear the wrath of God naked without covering. But it doesn't have to be that way. God in his mercy has provided the means necessary to dwell with him in perfect communion and fellowship and fullness of life. Ephesians 5 Verse 5 says, for you, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Your way of presenting your body as a living sacrifice 
by living out the purity Jesus has made possible, may look different than everyone else's. Your purity may be moving out of your boyfriend's house until you get married. Your purity may be apologizing for slandering someone's name behind their back. Your purity may be loving your husband or wife in a more Christ-like manner. Your purity may be calling on the Lord's strength to finally propose to your girlfriend of several years. It may look different, but everyone is called to live it out. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, meaning completely pure and holy, to be sin on our behalf, so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. This right here, my brothers and sisters, is what is referred to as the great exchange. This, this is what makes us pure. This is what our sacrificial offerings are, and that is being in Christ. But why? How is this possible? Because he being righteous covered himself in our sin. He took on our sin and us being sinful are covered and put on his righteousness to be worthy of entering into God's presence. Oh man, hopefully that wasn't too much. Hopefully that was brief and concise and straight to the point. So if you made it here in one piece, I give, I give you my sincerest thank you. Just as the I Married Virgin series, this will also be a two-part series. So hopefully this first episode served as a foundational framework for the theme of purity, going back to the beginning, to the book of Leviticus. Next episode, I hope to have a wonderful conversation with a dear friend, focusing on the practical steps of being pure here and now through everyday life, through our covering that was provided through our, by our Lord Jesus. Man, this stuff is difficult, but boy, is it worth it. So if you still feel skeptical or unconvinced or maybe even antagonistic towards the Bible and Christianity and what it teaches about purity, I would invite you to join us and don't knock it. Don't knock it till you know. Don't knock it till you try it. Peace.